To what extent does the erosion of Canadian civil liberties in the name of security mirror events in the country from 100 years ago? Following the October 22nd shootings in Ottawa, are Muslims in Canada now being targeted by the federal government the same way Ukrainians and other Eastern Europeans were targeted during the First World War? What traditionally are the hallmarks of so-called false flag operations, and does last week's attacks in Ottawa fit the pattern of such an event? How have media failed in their portrayal of this event? Is there evidence of American involvement in the attack? On this week's edition of the Global Research News Hour, we return to the Ottawa attacks of last month with two analysts. Richard Saunders of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade details the erosion of civil liberties at the time of World War I. And Barry Zwicker, author of an article arguing that the Ottawa shooting was a false flag, or overseen by state authorities. On this week's program, Canada's 9-11, advancing an agenda with false flag terror. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 21st, 2014. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. You can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. If you still think the United States government would never harm its own citizens for the benefit of federal agencies, then I would direct your attention to a formerly classified black ops program launched by the U.S. government starting way back in 1945. With the goal of testing highly radioactive substances on overall healthy patients through secret injections administered by government agents, the program has still been widely ignored since being released to the public in recent years. In the covert program that is now admitted to be true, the United States government injected unknowing human participants with highly toxic substances like plutonium, it sounds like a bizarre torture scenario that you would expect to see blamed on illegal terror organizations, but the individuals behind this crime are actually doctors working for the United States government. Disregarding the health of innocent citizens, the government testers were eager to see how unknowing participants suffered as a result of the injections. That's from the article, U.S. government injected citizens with uranium under secret program. Flashback by Anthony Gucciardi, posted November 19th, originally appearing at Natural Society. The UN General Assembly has stated that the international community, through the United Nations, has a legitimate interest regarding the protection of Jerusalem's unique spiritual, religious, and cultural dimensions. Its position on the question of Jerusalem is based upon General Assembly Resolution 181 November 29, 1947, 
which provides for the full territorial internationalization of Jerusalem. Quote, the city of Jerusalem shall be established as a corpus separatum under a special international regime and shall be administered by the United Nations, unquote. According to a 1979 report, prepared for and under the guidance of the Committee on the Exercise of the Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People, the UN has maintained that until the final status of the city is agreed by the parties involved, the legal status of the city remains a corpus separatum. The United Nations General Assembly, UNGA, does not recognize Israel's proclamation of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which is, for example, reflected in the wording of General Assembly Resolution 6330 of 2009, which states that, quote, any actions taken by Israel, the occupying power, to impose its laws, jurisdiction, and administration on the holy city of Jerusalem are illegal and therefore null and void and have no validity whatsoever and calls upon Israel to cease all such illegal and unilateral measures, unquote. That's from the article, Netanyahu claimed to Jerusalem as capital city of Israel, rejected by United Nations, by Anthony Bellchambers, posted November 19th. The Kremlin is again blamed for having shot down Malaysian flight MH17 over Ukraine by world leaders who know very well that they are lying. They cannot have ignored the appalling conclusion of the analysis by the German pilot and airline expert Peter Heisenko that MH17 could not have been brought down by a surface-to-air missile, but rather by gunfire of a Ukraine military aircraft type Su-25 as indicated by shrapnel holes in the cockpit. That's from Global Research, July 30th, 2014. Vladimir Putin eventually left the G20 summit before it ended, a 17-hour trip home. Quote, I have to work on Monday. No worries. My finance minister will attend the final dinner, unquote. And off he went. Now imagine a positive alternative. Mr. Putin, instead of walking out straight, takes center stage, responding to these senseless lies and accusations about Ukraine by publicly divulging the facts. That's from the article, Vladimir Putin marginalized a G20 in Brisbane? Imagine Mr. Putin takes center stage by Peter Koenig, posted November 20th. The headline, Red Lights Are Flashing on the Global Economy, in my opinion, is very true. What followed the headline with was not. In this article, which was penned after leaving the G20 summit, Mr. Cameron went on to mostly tell the truth about the global woes, but was very careful to exclude Great Britain. So, David Cameron covered his butt with the headline, When the time comes, he can now say, I told you so, you should have listened to me. Unlike David Cameron, who is still in office and trying to cover his reputation, there are two ex-U.S. government officials who are and have been telling you the truth for years, Paul Craig Roberts and David Stockman. They both say, it's over, from a mathematical standpoint. I don't understand why anyone even questions what they say. That's from the article, Britain and the Global Economy in Crisis, by Bill Holter and Miles Franklin, posted November 19th. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The Ottawa shootings following on the heels of a hit-and-run killing of a Canadian soldier has triggered a set of proposals that have conferred more power to police and security authorities and helped sell the Harper government's plan for more military aggression, supposedly against ISIL fighters in Syria and Iraq. Richard Saunders is the coordinator of the Ottawa-based coalition opposed to the arms trade. He sees some parallels between the government moves in response to the shootings and the measures taken during World War One to restrict civil liberties. They are described in an article soon to be released in the CCPA Monitor. So, hello, Richard. Yeah, hi, Michael. This idea of, of giving up our liberties in the name of security uh, that that's something that uh, I think a lot of us are familiar with with nine eleven, and I, I I understand from your recent you've you've written an article in which you uh, address uh, a, a little known reality or, or little recognized reality that some of these same sorts of initiatives were engaged in one hundred years ago at the start of World War One. Uh, yeah, in nineteen fourteen was the beginning of the uh, First World War, of course, and the uh, War Measures Act was put into into place. The War Measures Act um, was passed by Parliament, and basically it gave the Conservative government at the time the uh, kind of basically dictatorial powers. So this act was, this law was passed by the Conservative majority, plus the 88 Liberals, plus one other MP who was a Labour Party MP. They all unanimously passed the War Measures Act, which allowed the government, well, not the government, it allowed Cabinet, in consultation with the Governor-General, to bypass Parliament, and they did so for the next uh, four years or so, um, to bypass Parliament, pass uh, whatever laws it wanted, and among the the severe, extreme dictatorial um, powers that it got from this War Measures Act was the ability to arrest and detain people without any trial and to hold them in internment camps. So some people might have some knowledge the fact that there were these internment camps in Canada. And I've been writing a book over the last year or more uh, about uh, captivity, mass captivity in Canada, and one of the one of the better known examples of that is the internment camps that were set up during the First World War. Um, they they were set up uh, using this War Measures Act, which wasn't just about the war; it was also about insurrection. So the War Measures Act was presaged on the the idea that there was a war and the potential for insurrection. And that was really a main concern that they had at that time. There had been a failed revolution in Russia in 1905 uh, with the massacres by the Tsarist troops, and uh, there was very intense 
uh, activism, radical uh, labor activists that were, and a lot of the immigrants from Eastern Europe that were coming into Canada were uh, very aware of what was going on in Europe and uh, the Russian revolutionary activities that were going on there, and they were supportive of those, and they were actively organizing for such radical, outrageous things as, um, you know, a uh, an end to child slavery and uh, giving women the right to vote and um, social insurance for the elderly and... Uh, and, uh, you know, a, a set number of hours in a day that you had to work and this sort of thing. So they were doing these really revolutionary things like calling for those things. They were also very anti-capitalist. And so this was a threat to the, the establishment at the time. And so the war was used as an excuse to clamp down on radicals. And there were quite a few radicals, and they were a lot of them were amongst these Eastern European immigrants that were in Canada. And there was a lot of xenophobic hatred of, of foreigners. It was incredible stereotyping of, of, of immigrants, particularly non-white, but also white immigrants who happened to be from Eastern Europe were really looked down upon. And uh, so they were rounded up, and there were about um, 5,000 of the, of the 9,000 or so that were rounded up during the First World War um, and put into these 24 internment camps that were run by the military. And they were forced labor camps, by the way. They were slave labor camps. So they were forced to work uh, at bayonet point and gunpoint, um, and they did very hard labor. Uh, so these were slave labor camps in Canada. There were two dozen of them run by Sir William Otter, who was uh, who had who was considered the father of the Canadian Army, and he actually had fought in the Northwest Rebellion, fought putting down uh, Native uh, armed insurgents who were fighting to oppose the genocide and the that is the fact that they were restricted to reservations and the land plunder that the Western civilization was imposing upon them, and they were fighting back. And so William Otter, who ran the internment camps in, in Canada during the First World War, he was a veteran of, of leading um, a battalion there, and plus he had gone to the Boer War and in South, in South Africa. And <clears throat> Boer War, just to mention it, just it's curious, it's interesting that this year the War Memorial in Ottawa, which was originally built as a war memorial to remember the military dead uh, from the First World War. But this year it was rededicated to also include the Boer War, 1899 to 1902 or so. So they just added that, the the dates and the war, and the the Afghan uh, war has also been added to the war memorial now. So those war dead from those two wars are now added to the First World War, which originally was in the Second World War and the Korean War. Anyway, so uh, the South African War, just to say a second about that, they also had huge concentration camps there. And uh, Otter was was sent off, the guy that ran the internment camps in Canada, he was sent off to the Boer War and ha- headed up a battalion there. And there were uh, 40,000 uh, Dutch settlers in South Africa, as well as black 
native aboriginal black people in in south africa who were put into concentration camps 40 no 40,000 of them died who were put into these horrible concentration camps so canada's expertise in holding people enclosed in uh what we called reservations uh was used to good effect during the Boer War when we sent over uh, mounted police and uh, a battalion under this William Otter guy. Anyway, I've uh, I, I, my main point here is that the war, the First World War, was used as an excuse to round up radical revolutionary type um, immigrants who the government saw as a threat to the established order. And uh, I think there are some might draw parallels with how the war today against ISIS is uh, there may be a backlash against um, Muslims in Canada who are considered a threat um, because simply because of their uh, their religion or their their background and they are like the Ukrainians during the first world war who were rounded up en masse and put into these camps were not enemies of of Canada. They were considered to be enemies of Canada, enemy aliens, because Ukraine was had been usurped into the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was our enemy during the First World War. Um, but these Ukrainians were more likely to be against the Austro-Hungarian Empire than the average Canadian, because they actually saw them as a you know an imperialist. Power that had put their country under the chains of of the empire, so they weren't likely to go and support the Austro-Hungarian Empire in, in any way. So rounding them up was for another reason. That was because they were a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them were uh, radicals, or the government was worried that they might potentially be radicalized. And that's another word that we hear nowadays is radicalized, because we hear about radicalized Muslims. Well, in those days, they were worried about radicalized Ukrainians. Okay. Richard, what was the official line coming from the government? Because it seems as if what we're talking about here is, you know, like you say, they're using World War One as an excuse to crack down. But what what was the official line exactly? I mean, was there any kind of a domestic incident or was like what what would possibly – could they say? I mean, they they didn't say. Well, we want to protect the uh, established uh, capitalist order in Canada. Um, the uh, the the line of of uh, reasoning, or the, the the stated ostensible reason for rounding up these people, was because they they were um, uh, came from countries that we were now engaged in war with. So the World War One, you know, our enemies were the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians. Uh, Ukrainians were a large chunk of the Austro-Hungarians that were were here. Um, so that was the excuse that they're enemy aliens. Uh, in reality, I mean, the fact the fact that the some of the camps were kept in operation and that the internment system was kept going and that we continued to hold. Ukrainians and others in these slave labor camps in Canada after the Second World War ended, to me, indicates quite clearly that the war was not really the purpose of holding these people. They had camps that were open, continued to be kept open, 
I mean, they were closed. The people were kept in them behind the barbed wire and continued to be forced to do the slave labor in B.C. and in Ontario and in uh, Nova Scotia. So they kept, kept these people in there, and uh, that was because of the Russian Revolution. The Russian Revolution happened, and this was a frightening incident to the establishment here. As uh, were the rise, as was the rise in act- activism and organizing of socialists and anarchists, like the IWW was very active in those days, and socialist parties were growing, and they had elected people in BC to the provincial, at the provincial level, and uh, so the government was scared of these of this growing potential. There was actually a recession in 1913 and 1914. And at this time, like 100 years ago, this winter, the winter that we're just about to go into, 100 years ago, the government was predicting that hundred, up to as many as 100,000 people would become unemployed. And most of those unemployed people 100 years ago were going to be the and were the uh, foreign immigrant laborers who were doing hard work in lumber camps and mines and building railway lines and that sort of thing. Uh, the kind of backbone of Canadian labor and of resource extraction and that. And uh, they were the ones that were most prone to being radicalized. And they were largely immigrants. And a lot of them were from Eastern Europe. And a lot of them were being radicalized by IWW and socialist activists that were going into the, those labor camps where they were working, not the forced slave labor camps, but just the ordinary labor camps, which were in a way a bit forced because they had no other options. So uh, the mainstream unions in Canada at the time were not interested in organizing these uh, foreign immigrant workers in those labor-intensive uh, jobs out in the bush. But the socialists and the IWW types were organizing them, and they were um, very uh, revolutionary, radical types, anti-capitalists that were very inspired by the Russian Revolution. And so it was a frightening thing. And so they just used the uh, the threat of war and insurrection. War and insurrection were the terms that were used in the War Measures Act as the reasoning for why we needed to uh, have these, the, why the cabinet needed these extremely um, dictatorial powers to use, to bypass parliament and just be able to pass laws uh, willy-nilly, however it deemed necessary. Richard, is it possible for you, given that historical precedent, is it possible for you to project to now and what kinds of, I mean, you, you drew a comparison with today's Muslims do you have any sense of, of, of how, th- e- even a cursory uh, examination of how bad things could get for Muslims today? What, what, do they, well, what do we need to watch for? Well, um, something that pops into my mind is a curious, uh, a curious coincidence that the, the, uh, the murder happened on October 22nd, right? Well, one year before, on October 22nd, 2013, it's interesting that the the BC uh, Civil Liberties Association filed a lawsuit 
against the Communications Security Establishment of Canada, calling on the government to state clearly who they are watching and what they're collecting, the data that they're collecting about Canadians, and how they're handling uh, private communications and information uh, that about, uh, you know... So they filed a lawsuit, and coincidentally, it was one year before the shooting on the hill on the, on the, at the war memorial, war memorial, the National War Memorial. Um, that's the sort of thing we have to watch out for. Not just, but not just surveillance, increased uh, surveillance of our communications uh, and of information about Canadians, like databases about about individuals not just Muslims, but anyone, activists. Uh, they're keeping tabs on people. They have been for decades or centuries, <laughs> really, actually. But uh, it's become obviously much, much more sophisticated and computerized, and uh, the Internet allows them, uh, and computers allow them to access lots of information about us. Um, so how are they handling that information? How are they collecting it? But all, not only that, not only the information, not only how are they dealing with all this data that they have about us, but also another thing to, to be uh, wary about and how, that they might use incidents like this to to make uh, to escalate or just to uh, sort of fast track the laws, the new laws that they want to put in. It's also about um, preemptive uh, arrest. Of people, like if people are chattering on the internet about God, I don't know what, you know, some stupid idea to do this or that, or they're chatting in a bar about this or that, can they be arrested just for talking, just for thinking about or expressing ideas about things that might be done? You know, I don't know. There's a slippery slope there, and it's a very uh, scary thought. That I think, I think. And a lot of other people do, I guess, think this too, that, uh, you know, people have a, uh, have certain freedoms of, of the right to think things and that they, they the right to say things, but uh, uh, to, to be preemptively arrested before you've actually done any crime is a bit, it's a bit, uh, I don't know, it's a bit scary to, to think that they could go beyond the... Uh, we already have a pretty robust set of laws to deal with criminal activities. Um, the, the, the problem is maybe sometimes just... or they, they don't uh, act on on, on uh, the laws. Uh, there's lots of people that maybe should be put in jail, but they might not be put in jail because they're actually in power. But maybe they should be put in jail. Um, but, of course, they don't put them in jail. Um, the biggest criminals always tend to get away with their crimes, and the, it's the littler criminals that tend to be rounded up um, just for thinking about criminal activities like maybe opposing capitalism or something, or maybe, you know, trying to stop child slavery or some crazy idea like trying to get a, a health care system or a you know, a program of a social safety net in the country, which was what people were talking about then. That was basically a criminal activity. Or going on an illegal strike or something like that. Um, can you round people up because they're thinking about
about chatting about having a illegal general strike or something. I don't know. It's the potential for abuse of power, of course, is is what we need to be watching out for, and how that abuse can be, um, uh, how they can use a pretext and wars and the fear of wars and the fear of immigrants and the fear of people that are different from us is uh, these are things that can very easily be abused uh they be taken advantage of uh in order to uh rationalize or um excuse the kind of uh, policies or laws that they want to put in place that will further limit uh our civil liberties Richard Saunders, I think we're going to have to leave it there, but I thank you very much for sharing those perspectives with us. Okay, well, thanks for calling me. Okay. I've been speaking with Richard Saunders. He's the uh, Ottawa-based organizer of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade. He has an upcoming article, Canada and the First World War, Slave Labor Camps and Other Extraordinary Renditions, which will be available in the next issue of uh, CCPA Monitor. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Is it possible that the Ottawa shootings of October 22nd constituted a false flag attack? one that is aided and abetted by state authorities? Barry Zwicker thinks so. He has worked as a journalist since the age of 16 and has worked for the Vancouver Province, the Detroit News, the Toronto Star, and the Globe and Mail, among other publications. He's also served as a media critic on CBC TV, Report on Business TV and CTV, and the Vision Channel. And, of course, he's written a major article, which is now published on the Global Research site, Canada's False Flag Terror, Fingerprints of U.S. Involvement. So I welcome Barry Zwicker to uh, Global Research NewsHour. Thank you once again for joining us, Barry. Well, I'm very glad to be here, Michael, especially on Global Research NewsHour, because I I much admire, have remarked for some time, the Global uh, Research site. Okay, well, thank you. So um, I guess I'm just going to uh, ask, first of all, um, the day this uh, the, the shocking events took place in which uh, it was discovered there was reporting about the uh, uh, this uh, gunman, uh, Michael Zihaf Bibo, uh, what, what were you thinking as the events were unfolded on television? Well, it's, uh, it's uh, interesting to me that there was a tremendous parallel, and this is on a personal and also a much uh, larger and political level, very much a parallel between that day um, of uh, the 22nd of October and um, and uh, September 11th, 2001. Because on September 11th, 2001, uh, my wife called me on the intercom and said that a neighbor had told her over our mutual fence that there's something going on in New York, was his words, that he thought I'd be interested in. 
and of course, then I tuned in and 9-11 landed, and I did turn on my TV and started to tape and so on. And in, in the case of October the 22nd, my son called me and said, Dad, there's something on CBC radio that I think you'd be interested in. <laughs> so it's interesting that, that we, and this would have hold true of all sorts of people besides myself, um, there's a particular way that we get plugged into uh, these seminal events. And so there was quite a parallelism uh, going on there. As soon as I did get plugged in, I initially couldn't help but accept that things were unfolding more or less as we were told. But as with 9-11, very soon thereafter, my skeptical mind kicked in, and I thought, wait a minute, this is just too, too iconic. I mean, for a gunman to be at the National War Memorial? I said, I am sorry. So, again, looking at parallels, this was the same parallel as I felt on September 11, 2001, uh, when I heard that uh, these uh, towers had been in New York, had been brought to the ground, and that the U.S. Air Force had not stopped the airliners that were going to crash, had gone off course, and were going to crash into those buildings. So I just thought, no, no, I'm sorry. The U.S. Air Force is the most mighty uh, armada ever uh, assembled in the skies in the history of the world, and it's well known that they take off on three minutes' notice and so forth. So it just was unbelievable. And similarly, for something to happen at the National War Memorial uh, was just too cute, too obvious, too iconic for me to be believable. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting also that the 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 two soldiers uh, that were killed. I mean, okay, there was the one soldier at the war memorial, and then there's previously uh, the hit and run killing of uh, of another man in Quebec, and you know, very uh, that elicited a certain amount of empathy there, right? Yeah, the fact that they were soldiers and yep. just in advance of November 11th. Um, uh, yeah, are, are there any other uh, iconic elements to this whole story or narrative that uh, that pop to your mind? Well, yes, iconic, and also they follow a pattern, these elements, as you might call them. Um, one was the timing. Uh, I mean, the timing was, if you will, exquisite, uh, that uh, the outrage on Parliament Hill to go at the, uh, the later timing first, uh, was on the very day that the Harper government was introducing <clears throat> excuse me, this legislation to increase the powers of, uh, of CSIS and the RCMP and so forth. Uh, so so the, the, the timing was, was remarkable. And um, then the second thing is that it rapidly became avail- uh, uh, evident that there had been prior involvement of agents of the state, that is, CSIS and the RCMP, with both of these individuals uh, who performed these uh, these acts of murder. And um, that is a very, that is one of the most damning um, pieces of evidence 
that ties in with false flag operations ever since I've been ever since I've been uh, studying them. You find over and over again that the FBI or the CIA or Mossad or whatever whatever intelligence agency so-called that you want to name has been in touch with closely in touch with monitoring for months uh the the alleged uh, terrorists and uh it's 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 just a, a, a total pattern and it's criminal if you will that the media don't point out this pa- pattern it's uh, the usual phraseology is that agents of CSIS or the RCMP or the FBI like had been in contact with these alleged criminals or had these individuals under surveillance or had been monitoring their activities and and so that that is a really uh, big alarm bell that agents of the state have been involved with these individuals uh, who have gone on either to commit horrible outrages up to and including murder or just to be found just short of having committed them and and you know that's a that's a big that's a big uh, uh, flag the third thing which ties in with that is that usually these terrorists or alleged terrorists, the persons who actually committed these outrages or or are said to have been about to commit them, they're what uh, Webster Tarpley uh, calls human wreckage over and over and over again. They are deeply troubled people, mental uh disturbances of various kinds in and out of trouble with the law and so on and it's very very easy for agents of the state uh, to manipulate these people I mean they are they are vulnerable to being bullied or or uh, bribed or or tricked into doing all sorts of things and uh, you know uh, Zihaf Bibo this guy was he was desperate he was on the edge unpredictable he he actually said he wanted to die and and how easy would it be for people who are closely in touch with human wreckage to steer them in a direction uh well it it is easy i'm sorry it's easy yeah. and and that's another of the uh, hallmarks of false flag operations and another one is that these guys were allegedly lone wolves you know the lone gunman uh, paradigm and uh, like uh, Lee Harvey Oswald being the lone gunman who killed JFK and without a doubt JFK was killed by a government conspiracy so was Martin Luther King uh, you know and yet it was claimed that that a lone gunman killed him which was disproven actually in a in a in a long uh, civil court case in Memphis later on it was shown that the CIA and the US Army uh, were behind the uh, killing of Martin Luther King um, that was revealed in a court case uh, with no no doubt about it it's not questionable or conspiracy theory right exactly you you've said it exactly right the uh, the it was a months long case there was a jury uh, six black people, six white people, and uh, they found out that uh, they specifically named the CIA as being involved with uh, the uh, involved in the in the killing of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So, so that that lone gunman 
narrative is is common to these to these false flag operations and then another another uh, aspect which is frequently encountered and was encountered in the case of what I'm calling Canada's October surprise which is that these lone wolves tend to become quickly deceased they you know they get bumped off and uh, so it's 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 the case with with both of the Canadians uh, that they are no more. So there there can't be a trial, uh, there can't be evidence brought forward at the trial, and uh, and that was the case with Lee Harvey Oswald and and many of the others. Sometimes I wonder if they must be so unacquainted with the history of these things themselves. These these sad individuals, they must be so unacquainted with these things that that somehow they don't think that they are going to be bumped off. Or conceivably, they do have a death wish, which, which was the case um, with, with one of them, as I say. And uh, there's something called suicide by cop, which you may be familiar with, and that is where someone who wants to die, rather than doing it by their own hand, they do something horrific, and then the cops face them, and they taunt the cops, and the cops shoot them dead, and that's called suicide by cop and that's that's what happened uh with the ottawa shooter and and anyway that doesn't even exhaust the the hallmarks of a false flag operation uh that apply to these events of october the 20th and october the 22nd yeah i i don't think we'd have enough time to go through all of them but i mean if you had a say a checklist of of all of the uh the things to watch for, or, or all of the ingredients of a false flag operation, uh, in your view, like what are we looking at with regard to the Ottawa incident? Like, uh, I don't know, a hundred percent, ninety-five percent. Well, seventy percent. I'm tempted to say a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, because uh, besides the ones I've mentioned, and I actually uh, number them in the piece that I that I posted at Truth and Shadows, which. Uh, Global research picked up. Uh, the others include the branding of it, and you had Stephen Harper early on saying of the October the twentieth uh, hit and run killing that uh, it was terrorism. Just bang, just like that. And then another uh, really telling one is that security exercises or war games are uh, usually taking place when these actual real world events happen. And, uh, and it's been shown with the London 7-7 bombings and with 9-11, of course, lots and lots of these security exercises or war games are taking place. And that enables them to round up resources and actually have dry runs, which you need with any complex operation. And, and uh, so that, that's another aspect. And, uh, and that even doesn't exhaust them. There's the media manipulation. And in the case of uh, of of the uh, Canada's October surprise, uh, you you had obvious media manipulation on both both sides of the border. I mean, American news outlets came out with the information, uh, including the name of the Ottawa shooter, before it came out in Canada. I mean, yeah. come on, and that's why uh, that's why uh, Craig McKee uh, in. Uh, Choosing a headline for the posting I did on Truth and Shadows uh, said that it showed the fingerprints of American involvement, and these were very definite fingerprints. I mean, and I, I go through them. Okay. The media also failed to ask fundamental questions. 
following that uh, analogy or, or the uh, the false flag uh, uh, assertion, you know, there. I mean, you, you talked about the the way these uh, these uh, lone gunmen are, uh, or the the lone crazed folks are quickly dispatched because dead men tell no tales. Uh, I know that, like for in in the famous case of JFK, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, who was uh, uh, considered the the pers- the lone gunman who went after JFK, he was shot by Jack Ruby, who was demonstrated to have those strong mafia connections. Did, I mean, that kind of suggests, like in this case, the sergeant at arms, Kevin Vickers. Do you have any suspicions that maybe he? Uh, was playing some sort of a predetermined role because the, if, if the, the idea was to have him quickly dispatched, they had to make sure that the person doing it would, would, would knew what he was doing. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, or is it pos- is it possible that, you know, it's just, uh, they, they took the chance that this person was just an innocent, uh, fellow who did it doing his duty. I, I'm so, uh, uh appreciative, uh, Michael, that, that you, you use the words, do you have suspicions? And you said, is it possible that? And, and so those are the words I would use. I, I wouldn't go beyond suspicions. I wouldn't go beyond saying it's possible that, um, that Kevin uh, Vickers was in on it and performed his role of hero, because that was part of the iconography of it. The National War Memorial was iconic. Uh, the rush to the Parliament buildings was iconic. Getting into the Parliament buildings was iconic. Hijacking a car was high, was iconic. Uh, the fact that these are most, you know, that military people, as you've already mentioned, uh, were the ones who died, um, call them innocent victims. Uh, that was, th- these things were all iconic. So it would also be iconic for the very sergeant of Arn, sergeant, at arms of our parliament to have been the man who ostensibly, although it's said and probably is true that that we don't know or no one knows, perhaps never anyone will never know which which gun dispatched him. Although there are such things as forensics and looking at bullet wounds and bullets and shell casings and everything. In fact, I come speaking of suspicion. I'm just thinking right now thinking out loud that's kind of suspicious that we haven't heard more about whether they were able to find out how many bullets hit uh the attacker and um and whose were they i mean uh, another thing that's suspicious is have there been autopsies i haven't heard that there have been autopsies um if not why not uh, would is it possible that there were drugs in in those uh, who who uh, did the did the uh, did the murderous deeds? So I, I do call it I do call it suspicious, and uh, it was it was in my mind undoubtedly planned. It was a theater uh, event, and uh, it it was brilliant in its way. And so, if Kevin uh, Vickers didn't play a knowing role in it, at least. He clearly played an unplanned and unknowing role in it. As the hero. And I wondered, along the lines of suspicion, Michael, about his story, that, you know, he saw that there were, there's something going on, that there was somebody rushing 
uh, down that hallway the, of honor. And um, then he ran to his office where he kept a gun and ran out again. I mean, wow. How come he had a gun in his office, really? I hadn't heard that, you know, they stored guns in Parliament before. It was a 9 millimeter, as I understand it. Uh, that, that's what I recall, yes. So, so he had the time somehow, in a very, very, very short time frame, to run into the office, get his gun, come back, shoot the guy, or be part of, the, of those who were shooting at the guy. And, and so that does seem to me uh, <clears throat> to verge on, on, on a suspicious story. Hmm. Yeah, and um, I guess uh, there are other things that we should probably like media people like the, the questions that in, in an ideal world the media should be asking but are not. Uh, are, are there maybe speci- you know, questions specific to the incident that that we should be asking, or or that we should be researching, investigating, looking for that you don't see happening? Here's the question. Um, that could be asked. Um, is it possible that agents of the state had a hand in this outrage? And um, I, I comment, well, this question might not be as difficult to raise as one might imagine. And suppose it were handled this way. There's a long and well-documented history of authorities staging iconic events aimed at stampeding the public into supporting government initiatives, and so on. And I mentioned, you know, and the, per, the, the reporter asking this question could just throw in Colin Powell's introduction at the UN of alleged compelling proof, subsequently proven false, that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. And then there could be a little pause, and then the reporter could conclude, so can it be ruled out definitively? that behind-the-scenes actors in government circles in Canada had no hand whatsoever in the events of October 22nd. Now, that, could, that question could be asked in 45 seconds. But as I go on, you know, thinking about it, well, for any media person to ask that question, that would be the end of their career, probably. But even more likely, they wouldn't reach the stage of being a parliament, uh, parliamentary reporter or say the anchor of a national news program and so on, if they had the kind of skepticism, deep skepticism, uh, that would be pre, a prerequisite for asking that kind of question. They just wouldn't make it to that level in, in mainstream media journalism. So, you know, what can you say? Well, it ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you can imagine it could happen. And I mean, in, in real life, it should happen. But that's, that's the most fundamental question that wasn't asked. And instead, a whole lot of other questions, for instance, about security versus privacy, were asked. It's kind of useful, but not central, not fundamental. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there are other questions that are even more peripheral, and mainly the coverage lapsed into um, following the iconic trail about the brave soldiers who died, giving the ultimate sacrifice for their country, and, and, and as I predicted in my piece, and as came to pass, and my wife and I were at the Remembrance Day ceremonies in Toronto at the Cenotaph, that, that the, the, the whole Remembrance Day, not the whole of it, but much of Remembrance Day, um, was used to 
forward the official narrative about what happened on October 20th and 22nd. False flag operations have become an interwoven uh, myth that supports an Orwellian uh, planetary archetype of good versus evil. And uh, I didn't really think myself it could ever come to this, but I, I believe that's what it has come to. Do you have an opinion? Uh, I mean, who, who masterminded this, if you will? I mean, does like you, you, the title of your piece uh, it talks about the, the um, U.S. involvement. Did it originate stateside, or is this something that originated in Canada, or is some other entity altogether? Uh, to what extent has... It was Harper in the know, uh, or or is he just uh, responding in a kind of a opportunistic way? Do you have any thoughts? Have you come to any conclusions in that regard? Well, I, I have at least thoughts, if not conclusions. Um, the thoughts in, include to just uh, perhaps go to Harper first. I believe he had some knowledge. How much I wouldn't know. But the fact that he got up in Parliament shortly after the hit-and-run in St. John's sur Richelieu and absolutely branded it as terrorism, which even the opposition in Parliament said on the very day, how could he leap to that conclusion before uh, very much evidence was in? And so the fact that he did that, of course, it would fit with his worldview and it would fit with his politics. But how come he had the nerve to get up in Parliament and state with certainty that this was, quote, terrorism, unquote? It led, and the way he did it, relatively calmly, although he is a calm uh, cucumber, that's true. But um, that, to me, was a little bit of a tip-off that he was in on it, that he had some sort of foreknowledge. Uh, probably... He would be kept in the dark about the details, that's for sure. They wouldn't come and report to him exactly how these events were being orchestrated. But he'd have the general general um, heads up uh, so that he could uh, ply his uh, political game, uh, apply it to, to this uh, situation. And then knowing also there would be a subsequent, because this is a one-two punch, knowing that there would be a subsequent uh, event which would prove him right. And he would look very astute by having named the first event as terrorism and then the second one clearly as terrorism. And and so I, I think probably at some level he, he was in on it. As to who actually planned it, I think the Americans were absolutely involved. I mean, I, I, I provide, I believe, what you could fairly call evidence in my piece of that, of American officials and, the, and American media, and American officials and American media are very closely, you know, twinned. So, so they were in on it. We have the, we have the absolute proof of that from uh, the fact that there were there were news reports out of uh, from south of the border uh, that named the Ottawa shooter before before uh, Canadian media had done so, and they covered it up. And then covered up, then they removed it from their websites. And uh, so that, you know, it's, as, they, as has often been said, it's not necessarily the crime, but it's the cover-up that will get you into trouble. So they both committed the media crime, and they committed the media cover-up. 
And so that that was showed the Americans were in on it. Now, I think though that now it's gone beyond just American-led uh, worldwide uh, illusion. Uh, I, I think it's it's a global thing now. I think that MI5, MI6, Mossad, and uh, the so-called Five Eyes, the, the security and uh, communication spying establishments of the UK, the US, uh, New Zealand, and, and England and Australia are in on it. It's called well, it used to be called Echelon. They call it the Five Eyes now. It doesn't matter what it's called, but they're very, very closely integrated. And the very legislation that Harper is bringing in um, means that they will be even more closely allied. In other words, they will do even deeper and more frequent information sharing. So information being power, this gives them the power to cook up these false flag operations pretty well anywhere on the globe whenever they want and orchestrate them into a giant illusion. And that's what they're doing. And that's what you could imagine that anybody interested in world domination would do. <laughs> so it just seems to me that, that uh, it, it sort of makes common sense that they would come together in this way and integrate and correlate uh, their activities. And uh, so clearly the, U, the, the Americans and Canadians were very deeply involved in this. Well, on that note, Barry, I think we'll probably have to close, but uh, I want to thank you very much for, for sharing those perspectives with our audience. It's, I'm sure it'll be uh, very uh, provocative and informative in addition to your article. So thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. I believe we've gone over time again, um, Michael, and I apologize for my part in that. Well, that's fine. It's uh, very interesting Barry Zwicker, a long-time journalist and media critic, uh, speaking to us from his home in Toronto. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.